listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This month on Thought Leaders, we are speaking with Dr. Tyra Sellers, and her story isn't like a lot of the other stories that you've heard so far. But before we jump in, I want to make sure to preface this by saying if you have the opportunity, go check out APBA, or the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts, in their upcoming conference. There's still a week left to register, and you'll hear a little bit more as Tyra goes into her story and how she got to where she is today. So without further ado, Dr. Tyra Sellers. So today we are talking with Dr. Tyra Sellers, and thank you, Tyra, for talking with me today. My pleasure. And I know, um, as probably our listeners are aware or well aware of, you and I have talked now for a while, but um, I was really excited to get you on to the Thought Leader series because um, I'm very interested in, you know, your story. Um, But I, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs. And and so I'll, I'll jump right in. And so when we're talking about your origin story, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, how did you get to where you are today? Um, that, that's a good question. Um, and I think one that I love to ask other people. So thank you for asking. Um, let's see, I'm trying to even figure out where I am today so I can trace back. Yeah, I feel the same. Don't worry. Okay, let's see. So I don't have, um, I don't have like a, like a, like a singular streamlined path like some people um, do. Um, my road was a, a little more bumpy with some detours and things like that. So um, I suppose like it's, I suppose like where it, the hook started for me um not for behavior analysis, but for working in sort of helping professions and particularly services um, with individuals who have disabilities, started in um, school, right? Like grade school, junior high, um, volunteered, tutored, that sort of thing. And then um, as a teenager, got my first job as a respite provider um, in California, shout out to the Bay Area. Um, So I was doing in-home respite care. And then um, mostly from that point forward, all of my jobs were in that area. Um, But I was originally, um, so not everybody knows this about me, but I did not go to high school. Um, I finished the ninth grade and then I, um, and then I basically just, I went to community college. Um, so I took what's called the California equivalency exam. So I have the equivalent of a diploma. Um, but I, uh, I was a psych major early on. And then once I transferred to San Francisco state, I, changed it a couple of times, but eventually landed in philosophy. So, you know, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, behavior analysis was not, applied behavior analysis was not, um, 
as common or popular as it is today for lots of reasons that listeners know about. So um, even though I kind of was a psych major early on, I didn't really connect um, what I was doing in my work because a lot of my work really early on was much more on the caregiver side than the therapeutic side. Um, And then eventually I got a a job working at Spectrum Center in the Bay Area, which um, was still is a a series of um, non-public schools for individuals, usually with some pretty challenging problem behavior where they couldn't be served in their homeschool environment. Um, And that was my first introduction into the services that I was providing um, from a, a strictly behavior analytic framework, right? So that was kind of my aha moment that like, oh, all of this stuff that I've been doing could have been so much more effective and efficient if we all would have been doing it from this framework. But even then, um, I didn't really conceptualize or perceive that 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 would be my career. So I graduated um, with my degree in philosophy in the early 90s. You can't do much with that. It was also the era of, you know, uh, TV dramas that involved the legal system. And I was like, I have a big mouth. I like to argue. I'll go to law school. Um, and I did sort of think I would do special ed law, but I really disliked law school, which was my own unique experience, like no shade to the legal profession or lawyers. I finished, I got my law degree, Um, But I, but I just knew, like, I work really hard, you know, I'm okay working 60 hours a week, sometimes more. um, But I want my work environment to be as reinforcing as possible to me. And I just, it didn't, it wasn't a good, it wasn't the right fit for me. So even while I was in law school, I was still working in um, settings where behavior analysis was the foundation of what we were doing. As a matter of fact, I sat for um, and became a CABA in the very, very late 90s. So those of you listening before the Behavior Analyst Certification Board was a thing, Florida had a certification, um, an exam and a certification, and some states contracted with Florida. California was one of them. So I, because I had my bachelor's in philosophy, it was a different world in terms of how you could qualify but because I had my bachelor's in philosophy and um, like some experience hours and a letter that I could have submitted, I was allowed to sit for the associate, what would now be the BCABA. Um, so I sat for that. I had to fly from the Bay Area down to Southern California to take the exam. And as a matter of fact, in a very interesting link between me and Dr. Gina Green, Dr. Gina Green was sitting for her Um, much higher level exam the same time. So I sat behind her while I was taking my exam. Um, And then once the BACD came into existence, um, I, I transfer, I was able to transfer um, to a BCABA certification. So even while I was going to law school, I was still doing all of that. Um, And I just, I don't know, whatever I, I was, I didn't see my path that was clearly laid before me um, by the universe. I was I was struggling with um, the universe. So finally, I uh, settled in and thought this is the career for me. I got my master's in special education from San Francisco State with an emphasis in vocational education. So I did a lot of work with adults um, and then did 
applied work for a really long time. I have my own business. I worked for school districts, um, nonprofit center-based, and then I um, went back and got my PhD, went back into clinical work, uh, got to do a tremendous amount of really exciting work with Dr. Linda LeBlanc at Trumpet Behavioral Health for a few years. Then I got a position um, at Utah State University, which is where I got my PhD, which is another link between me and Gina Green, fun funnily enough. I don't think funnily is a word, but it is now, everybody. Um, it definitely is now. Yes. Get out there and behave funnily. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah. So I did that for a few years, worked at the university, had a research lab, taught um, undergrad, grad and doctoral level courses. That was really fun. Then I left that to go do um, work at the BACB as director of ethics. And that was brilliant, like working with so many incredible people um, and having an opportunity to serve the profession that I love, even though I wrestled with it for a long time early on. Then I did a year doing contract and consulting work most recently. And then I just accepted the position as CEO at the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts which allows me to continue to serve my profession. So that is my story and I'm sticking to it. And if you have any specific questions, please feel free. <laughs> well, I'm really interested like going back, um, mm -hmm. you know, one thing, you know, I didn't know because I mean, it's not our high school years is not something that is often out there for everybody to know. Well, for those of us that are older, the rest of y'all, I can go, go look on Facebook or Insta yeah. and see what you were doing. <laughs> right. And I'm, and I'm at the age where those were brand new when I was in high school. So, um, you know, my age was still figuring those out For Sure. when they first popped up. I was a MySpace kid. So <laughs> if you ever find that, ooh, who knows? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's really intriguing to me because I don't, you know, from all of the people I've talked to, you know, that's. That's not something that, you know, comes up. It's just, I think it's just assumed that everybody went to high school and they graduated and then they go to college and then this and then that. Sure. And um, for some of our listeners who, you know, may have family members or um, themselves yeah. or friends that, you know, may have, you know, been struggling with high school, um, you know, is your experience, you know, through that something that you know, you really attribute to finding your own way and your own path through a system that may not be for everybody? Yeah, I love that question. Um, yeah, yes. I mean, de definitely in a way. I mean, there were some contributing variables that just sort of made it make sense. But I, I have never been one to kind of, um, you know, fit in or do what everybody else does for better or worse, right? Like sometimes that's been a benefit. Sometimes it's been isolating. Um, but that that's, you know, that's just sort of my flavor. Um, <laughs> but so in junior high, so I'm a theater kid originally. Um, ever, I think I started doing theater when I was five, my older brother, um, did it. And, um, I was like a very gregarious, you know, like socially engaged kid. Um, and I'm sure my mom was like, yes, one more thing to get her out of the house and tire her out. So she'll fall asleep when she comes home. So I did like 
gymnastics, dance. I did ballet for a really, really long time. And I did theater. So I was busy, busy, busy. And school always came pretty easy for me. Um, and I also have a, a family history that is very significant for alcohol abuse. And so for me, I stayed far, far away from all of that. Like I'm 50 and I really have never, I don't drink. I never have. Um, so I was super busy all the time. Um, and you know, like pretty smart, I guess. And when I started high school, I was simultaneously doing a lot of auditioning for um, community theater, for commercial work, a little bit of modeling. And it was just really very difficult to, you know, manage being on campus. Um, you know, when I started, so when I went to school, 10th grade was high school. So when I started the 10th grade, it was really difficult, like to, I was missing class a lot. And so I think, it, um, I, I started talking to my, my parents about this wasn't really a good match for me. Um, and I was a good student. And so we talked to the counselor and they kind of begrudgingly suggested that maybe I, there was this alternative path for me. Um, and so I think I left high school in October. I had to homeschool myself until I qualified to take the exam, um, which was when you were 16 or when you were in the second semester of your 10th of the 10th grade. So January was when I could take the exam. So I took the exam and passed and I had already been going to community college, um, for the semester before that. So like, for me, it was really sort of just like high school didn't feel like a good match. I, I was going to learn anyway. And I was really busy and had other things kind of on my plate that I, that I wanted to be doing. Um, and I had parents who were kind of like that mix of hands offish, but supportive enough. Right. Like, so, you know, my, my home life was moderately dysfunctional, but in a way that like allowed me to take kind of control and do the things that I wanted to do. Now that said, there are folks that have a similar path to me, but for very different reasons. Um, and I love that you asked the question because I think people need to hear those stories of people that did it differently, or maybe high school didn't work out, or maybe they had an early substance abuse issue and then they handled it and now they're a PhD or whatever. Right. So like, there are so many beautiful, very different stories and paths for how we get where we get. And I love that you asked that because I think there is this sort of assumption that like, oh, you went to high school, then you went to undergrad, then you went straight through a master's PhD program, and then you did your thing. And that's not true for some of us. So thanks for asking. Well, and first off, I want to thank you for, you know, sharing some of those more intimate details, because I know that it's not always easy for us to, you know, go back and share some of those things um, on such a public level. So, <laughs> so one, thank you for, you know, being vulnerable and sharing those. Um, and second of all, like you said, I fully agree. Um, you know, me personally, yeah, I had a pretty traditional I don't want to say traditional, a pretty stereotypical, like what you would assume upbringing. Sure. Um, and, you know, with, the, but we all have our things that happened in there. But I think for, you know, for this podcast and for the purpose of it and the dissemination that people should know that there's not one way. Yep. You know, like they may, like 
somebody may see you now and be like, oh, Tyra Sellers, JD, PhD, BCBA, do you know what I mean? Like all of these things. And they're like, oh, you know, another, ac- another academic. And uh, they make a lot of assumptions when they see someone's name with a lot of those letters behind sure. it. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I kind of want to break that down because um, not everybody has the same path to get there. And I think that, you know, if, for those who are listening, if you know, if you or someone you know is struggling to try and get somewhere, know that there's not only one path to get there and it can be individualized to what you or somebody you know needs to, you know, to continue to make those steps. Absolutely. I think that is such an important message to get out there that your journey is your journey. You get to write your story. And just because you had a chapter that maybe isn't what you wanted doesn't mean you can't write a new chapter, right? So like, don't get caught up in, I have to have the same pedigree as somebody else, or I have to have gotten someplace the same way as somewhere else. Like we are all made stronger by increased diversity of experience. So you need to bring your own unique, weird, wonderful uh, history and story to bear on this world because we all need everybody's unique magic. We don't need echo chambers. We don't need replicas. We don't need copies, right? We need creativity, individuality. Um, and I, I really love that you're kind of highlighting that. And, um, and, you know, there are people out there that do great work to kind of normalize. It's okay if you go back to get your PhD when you're in your forties, who cares? So what if you had to take the exam two or three times, right? Like those are not the things that we should be measuring people's worth by. So I appreciate you uh, kind of highlighting that. And um, I, you know, it's, it's just so interesting, you know, for me to learn those things because um, I know that you and I have known each other now for a little while, for yeah. a little, over a year almost. I oh, think several years. Yeah. Something like that. I was like, I don't even know how long it's been. Yeah. Like time. What is time anymore? Anyway. Well, pandemic time too, right? So like I think probably <laughs> since 2019, maybe. Oh my God. Yeah. I think you're but, right. But it's then pandemic years. years are worth like times 10. So I think like 22 years or something. That's how long we've known each other. Oh my gosh. I know. I remember, I think like the first time we saw each other again in person after was, I think it was at APBA, I want to say. And you and you and Linda just like ran up and like hugged me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so weird to see you like actually in person, but anyway, neither here nor there, (laughs) but, um, you know, that's, that's me personally, you know, that's something that, and I don't want to make this about me, but something that, you know, I struggled with for a long time is that I love the field of behavior analysis. I do, but I want to do more. (laughs) And when I say more, I don't want to disqualify, you know, what clinical ABA is doing, what OBMers are doing, what, theoretical, conceptual, philosophical individuals, or I don't want to discredit that because I think it's great, but I want to do something different. <laughs> and um, that wasn't always an option, you know, even when I was back in school yeah. and, you know, uh, and so, you know, it took me 10 years almost to reapply, to find and reapply to something that's completely different than behavior analysis. And I mean, yeah, it's been, it's a struggle. Because I'm not surrounded by behavior analysts anymore. 
and they yeah. have no idea what I'm talking about. So I have to be very, you know, I have to learn to talk differently and bring in different things. And so, um, but yeah, you know, not everybody has that same path. And I, I really like hearing that. Um, but to kind of, you know, bring up some of your, your other stuff, um, that you've done and you've done, you've done a lot. And, um, I think, you know, from knowing you and knowing your history, I really love hearing about like the respite and the, this and the, that, because I actually did that back when I was an undergrad as well, um, at Western, um, that was, and honestly, still, like, I still have some art from some of my, yeah, and this and that, and I, I loved it. Um, but I think one of the things that has, you know, always spoken to me about, you know, some of the things that you've done is trying, you've, you've you've tried a lot of things and you've tried a lot of different things and, um, how it's it, how that's also important Mm -hmm. for, for individuals. And, um, you know, there are some people in our field who, like you mentioned, you know, you go through high school, college, undergrad, master's, PhD, academia. And that's also great because we need those individuals as well. But, um, and I know you went through it really quickly, but, you know, you've tried all of these different things and got to experience all of these different things. But um, like, how does those, all of these different experiences really bring you to where you are today in the work that, you know, that you're doing with APBA, but also with the books that you wrote, the supervision that you give, the, you know, these other activities you do, not just necessarily your job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for me, behavior analysis has always been, um, like the way it functions for me is that it informs everything I do. It's not something I do. I know. And part of that is just because, um, you know, I think of the, the, the time that I came up in our profession, um, it's a little different than it is now where you sort of think like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go become a BCBA. Like that wasn't a thing. Right. Um, and, we didn't have insurance funding and, uh, you know, it, it, this was pre ABA is the kind of standard, um, approach for X, Y, Z population. Um, so, so for me, behavior analysis was always just about like, it's the way that, that informs everything I do, whether or not it's, you know, working with individuals with special needs or, you know, how I manage my household. Um, and I think that is, I don't know, freeing a little bit because to your point, you know, you saying like, I want to do something with behavior analysis, but not maybe these traditional things. That's sort of how I always felt. I never thought I'm a behavior analyst and I can only work with people with autism or I can only work in a school setting. I just thought like, I'm a human who has the benefit of seeing life through the lens of our science, which means I can do anything and I can do it really effectively. And I'm still going to fail and make lots of mistakes. But fortunately, for whatever reason, my learning history did not... did not shape me into a perfectionist. And I only mean that not to throw any shade on perfectionists out there, but, you know, because uh, look, 
especially if you see my typos, you know, I'm not a perfectionist, but I think for me, what that did was gave me space to fail a lot, to make mistakes and not have that suppress my behavior. Now that also mean I made a lot of mistakes. Um, so I think just the idea that our science gives you a good foundation for being effective at anything you do just sort of opened up, you know, the world of possibilities. I never thought, I never thought I need to reach this point and then I'm, I'm at the pinnacle of my career. Right. So I, I didn't start out wanting to be a professor and I did that and it was great. And I learned a ton and hopefully made a little bit of a difference um, in the lives of the people that I have the pleasure um, and honor of interacting with. But it wasn't like, okay, now I've arrived where I want to be. I never had and still don't have a final destination for myself because I think it's so much more about the process. And my kind of motto is to try to leave every situation I'm in a little bit better off when I leave than when I got there. And I think about that every day, like when I'm in the grocery store, that's the way I'm trying to approach a, I'm trying to be as efficient as possible. So I know the layout of the grocery store and I go through um, exactly the way that I need to shop. Right. So I'm being very efficient about my environment, but I'm also thinking like, if I smile at that person, is that going to make their day better? That person's having trouble opening the little bag to put their apples in. Can I, can I help them out? Um, and I guess that approach, like combining kind of our science with that approach of just trying to make situations a tiny bit better is a really good blend. And then it it just means if there are opportunities out there that look like they have the possibility of being reinforcing for me and that maybe I can do some good, then I want to, I want to do that. So, um, I have pivoted a lot in my career, almost always focusing on some sort of service, right? Like that's just sort of the thing. I think that's all come together first in my position, um, at the university, because I felt like, well, I've done a lot of the work that the people I will be teaching want to do and are doing. Um, and I have a PhD and a law degree. So, you know, I have the, the knowledge side that felt right. Then, um, moving to the BACB, the BACB felt like, okay, well, I've, done a lot of the work. I've prepped people to do a lot of the work. I'm familiar with research. I have a law degree. I have a philosophy degree, which um, focused pretty heavily on uh, ethics and the principles of difference. That was kind of my area um, when I got my, my bachelor's. So that felt like the right way to combine. And now at APBA, I think like I have all of those things, plus my time at the BACD, which gave me more knowledge and information about certifying bodies and the difference between the different organizations, like a trade organization like CASP or a membership organization like APBA or a certifying or credentialing organization like the BACB or a uh, regulatory body like a licensure board. And I, because I was in the ethics department, sort of really understand and saw what folks are struggling with, what environmental variables sort of arrange themselves such that people maybe 
made non-optimal decisions in the moment um, or felt like they didn't have another choice. And moving into a position at APBA just means that hopefully I can continue to collaborate with folks to best support professionals so that they can be as effective um, as they can be. Um, so that's kind of how it all comes together. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. And before I get into my response to that, um, back to your grocery store example, <laughs> I also create my grocery list. Like my grocery lists are on my phone, just, you know, in my notes. Me app. Too. Yeah. And so like my, fa- well, when I lived with my family, like we could all add to it, but yeah. I would, I would organize it in a way that I, you know, all of the like things were together. Yes. So I didn't have to, you know, miss something. And then, oh my yes. gosh, I have to go back to the sauce aisle because yes. I put ketchup by the fruits and veggies. A hundred percent. It's so funny because I moved back with my family during the pandemic, just um, also because I wanted to leave Florida and I found out with two weeks notice. So I didn't want to look for an apartment. But then also because the pandemic then hit. And so it was just easier to stay there. And my family was not doing it that way before that. And I looked at it. I'm like, this is a mess. (laughs) I'm like, mom, how do you do this? Yeah. Props. And my family, it was so funny. I didn't, I didn't tell my family I was doing that. I just started doing it and um, they caught on. It was great. (laughs) It was wonderful. But, I love it. Behavior analysis for the win. I know. <laughs> um, but then back to, you know, how you talked about uh, some more about your different experiences. I, I love the reason you said why you, cho- why you, ch- you know, jump around and get these different experiences. And um, I think it's something that more people should also, you know, really take with them. It's that you saw an opportunity that you thought was going to be reinforcing for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important. Um, and I never really looked at it that way. And um, I will say, though, if you are applying to PhD programs, don't put all your hopes and dreams into your academic statement. Make it very clear that you have an idea of what you're going to do. Um <laughs> Because if you decide to try and tell a PhD on an application that you want to do this, 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 and this, they'll think you sound crazy. Um, It's true, but isn't that so sad? Even if you say in your application that you want to, you know, go work for a nonprofit or go into clinical, a lot of times I think still many programs will not value that because the idea is if you're getting your PhD, you should become an academician. And I want everybody to know that you should become whatever the hell you want to be, right? <laughs> like it, there is no formula. And um, so just so everyone knows, I did not apply to a behavior analytic PhD <laughs> program. That is not, so I'm not trying, I'm not, and I'm not throwing shade at the program I'm in because I love it. I chose it for a reason. But um, it was really funny when they're asking me because I, I do love teaching. I love supervising. I love mentoring. Um, I really love working with students and, you know, helping them develop into the individuals that they want to be. Yes. Um, but I also like working out in the community. <laughs> and I also like the applied side of things, yeah. not just the academic side of things. Um but like you said, you know, like you said, unfortunately, that's not always the thing. But um, 
I I've had those, I've been lucky enough that I've had those opportunities as well, you know, um, with my time at ABA tech, that's the, honestly, that's the reason I applied. And that's the reason that even though the job was in Florida at the time, (laughs) I still took it because I'm like, this is a really, like, it seems like a really cool company. Um, the stuff that they're doing is really great. This and that, and this was back years ago, but, um, and it's grown so much since then as well, but, you know, I didn't really look at it as, um, I'm doing these things because I believe they're going to be reinforcing for myself. That's not how, I don't think that's how I framed it. And, you know, to myself at the time, but I think that that's really important because, um, like I mean, one thing that you and I probably always hear about on social media or see and this and that is all of these big signing bonuses for this or for that or these jobs and that jobs, um, you know, with a lot of the clinical work that uh, I've seen. Um, But what I found out, I, you know, I went into a clinical, the clinical world at first. And after three years, I burnt myself out because it's not what I wanted to be doing. But I was making money to help pay off student loans, but I realized how miserable I was. (laughs) So I think that that's when a switch flipped for myself that I'm like, I need to find something that I actually really enjoy. Yes. And I think that that's so important to, for people to hear is finding the things that you enjoy doing, even if it may not be traditional, even if, you know. It, it may not be what other people assume or think you should be doing. Um, yeah. Like, oh, you have to stay at a job for a year or this or that. Um, you know, those kinds of things that yeah, yeah. you always hear. Yeah. I think, um, I think all of, all of that resonates with me. I will say, I think for me, the opportunity to make some of the choices and the pivots that I've made probably also have been tied to the fact that I moved through the world from a place of privilege, right? Like the color of my skin, how I grew up, my nationality, what have you. Um, and not, not always do people have those same um, opportunities. And so I don't want to make it sound like, you know, just make a choice. Um, because it, you know, sometimes there are external and systemic, um, variables and factors and influencers that, that make that really difficult. But what I do hope people take away is the message you are giving, which is what's right for you is what's right for you. It's not some formula or what was right for somebody else. Um, and then what I would add is, um, I think, I think we have this idea that we have to make the best choice. Um, and one thing that I have learned in my life is, um, and this is, I think this is in line with a behavior analytic perspective in this moment, I can't know what the best choice is, I can only know that after the choice has been made and I experience some of the consequences. Um, And so I think if we can get rid of that idea of I have to make the best or the right choice and instead frame it as I need to make an informed choice or I need to make a thoughtful choice. And 
that might ease the burden that people feel. I think people get so scared to, to do something different because they worry, you know, what, what if this bad thing, what if this bad thing? And I think you should open yourself up to, you know, well, what if it works out? What if this is the best thing? Or what if it isn't the best thing, but it leads to the best thing, right? So if we can think about choice as um, sort of a, a series of links in your choice chain in your life, that's the beauty is make an informed choice, evaluate the outcomes. And if it turns out that looking backwards, you can say, ah, this feels like the it was the right or the best choice. Great. If in looking back, you think, wow, I didn't actually predict that these would have been the outcomes and they don't feel right for me. Or I predicted they were the out- they were going to be the outcomes. And now that I'm experiencing them, for like, for example, for you going into clinical work, now that I'm experiencing it, maybe this isn't anymore what I want, but that's okay. It doesn't mean choosing to go into clinical work was the wrong choice for you. It just meant now in this moment, you need to make a different choice. So we think like we need to not get paralyzed by that whole, I have to make the right or the best decision. Just make a thoughtful choice, evaluate the outcomes and exercise your ability to make a different choice if you need to. And that's cool. Yeah. I think it's really, you know, I think it's, that's really an important message to hear. You know what I mean? Especially from, and I've been lucky enough to, you know, to be able to talk to some of what I have dubbed um, the thought leaders, you know, in our field and um, really hearing their stories and being surprised, being very, very surprised um, by, by a lot of them. Um, yeah. And I think it's really important to hear that, you know, there are opportunities out there. No, they're not always equal opportunities, unfortunately. Um, But there are many people, um, especially, you know, in our field in particular, who um, are working to try and help uh, rise up different individuals throughout, you know, throughout our field. And my, my message is reach out to these people. Don't hesitate to reach out to these people. Um, they are great. <laughs> and I and I 99% likely they will respond to you. Yeah. So to our listeners, reach out to these people. Um, they will do their absolute best to get back to you and assist you if they can or get you in contact with somebody who can assist you. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that you're telling people to do that um, because I think making connections is really important. And, and that's, that's the way that you learn what other people's paths were. Um, I, I still feel inadequate in our field, in our profession, um, because I don't have the trajectory that other people had. I didn't, you know, go to the best of the best programs and study under name drop here, you know, like that wasn't my experience. And I'm often working side by side with people that did have that experience and they're so smart. And I think like, oh my gosh, today's the day that, you know, everybody's going to realize that Tyra is a fraud and she doesn't actually know what she's talking about. And those thoughts are really real for me, but, um, And I assume that they might even have those thoughts as well, right? I think many of us do that. But but in 
speaking with people, reaching out, like you said, connecting with people more. I have gotten to learn that I'm not the only one like me with my experience. And similarly, the people that had that other experience that I tacked it as somehow optimal to mine also struggle with the same things that I have struggled with. So it's not like it's, it's always kind of grass is greener, but like we're all in this together and we all have something to, to bring to kind of benefit the profession and each other. And um, so I think, you know, to your point, connecting with people, reaching out, finding mentors, con- creating a community of practice. I think that's so important. And um, one thing too, that, you know, I just want to mention to some individuals is, you know, some that may be listening is that, I, you know, I personally know how hard it can be to get to conferences, especially big conferences. There are, you know, costs, there's time, there's travel, there's this or that associated with it. But even if you can't make it to conferences, which is perfectly fine, like you said, Tyra, reach out to these people. Mm-hmm. Because most of the time those, those uh, you know, the programs are online. Um, reach out to these people. Yeah. And, and just ask, talk to them. Um, so even if you can't make a conference, look at that program and reach out. Or look to align yourself with organizations that maybe can offer hybrid conventions. So a little plug for APBA, <laughs> depending on when this airs, either um, I will be telling the listeners that um, APBA 2023 in March will be hybrid, or if this comes out after, um, then I will instead be saying that APBA's 13th annual convention in March was hybrid, and there is a commitment to continue hybrid offerings, particularly because APBA should be your go-to professional membership organization as a professional in our field. And um, there are barriers to getting to conventions that are very real. Sometimes they're financial. Sometimes it's because you are a caregiver to children or to an elderly loved one or a family member with some particular need. Maybe you have a mental health or a physical health condition that makes it difficult, which shouldn't mean you don't get access to professional development. Maybe you just don't want to go be around a bunch of other people. That's okay too. Like you just want to be in your jammies. Um, So I think, you know, look for those organizations that are, that, and it's not always easy. Some organizations want to offer hybrid events and they can't because of cost or other things like that. So I am no way saying an organization that doesn't offer hybrid is doing something bad. Like they may literally not be able to do it, but if you are one of those people where getting there in person is a challenge, look for organizations that do have hybrid offerings because there are more and more of them out there. And this episode will be coming out the first Wednesday in March. So you will still have some time to register. Like a minute. One week. Like a minute to register <laughs> for APBA. Yes. Um, but I've been to APBA. I highly suggest it. Um, it is a good one. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time when I was there. So, um, but I mean, do you want to mention anything else? about, you know, your, how, you know, your origin story or how you got to where you are today that you wanted to leave the listeners with at all? 
Hmm, what do I want to leave the listeners with? So you can say no as well. (laughs) I mean, along with my kind of motto of trying to leave every position or every situation a little bit better when I leave than it was when I got there. The other thing that has served me well, um, and I used to just say, I used to say, engage in a lot of behavior and let your behavior get get shaped, right? And that served me well for a really long time. But then I modified it slightly with my years of experience in this world. So what I would say is do your best to be able to tact and discriminate contexts that you want to be in and then engage in a lot of behavior and allow your behavior to get shaped. Because what I learned is if you don't make that decision up front, then your behavior is going to get shaped in directions that maybe don't align with your values. So the first thing is you have to kind of be able to identify this organization, this program, these colleagues. These are people that share my values, that have high quality skills or knowledge in XYZ. And I want to be in their presence. And then I want to engage in a lot of behavior. And I want to let that behavior get shaped. It means you're going to make mistakes. But listen, that's what life is all about. Like, I do not want to be on my deathbed with, you know, without some scars and some bruises and some stories to tell. Um, because that's how we learn. So yeah, I guess that would be that would be the thing. Be smart, be thoughtful about the context you put yourself in and then do stuff. Take some chances and let your behavior get shaped in that community and by your own, you know, sort of evaluation. Um, but don't be scared to do things and make mistakes. And if you ever are, hit me up on social media and I'll give you a pep talk. <laughs> Entire's pep talks are great. So <laughs> So definitely do that. Um, So I think that's a really great spot to transition. Cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thought Leaders. Come back next month as we continue speaking with Tyra, as we ask her the questions, where does she see the field going? And or where would she like to see the field go? And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operantinnovations at abatechnologies.com.